Okay, well, thank you for the very kind introduction, probably more generous than I deserve. Um, and I'll try it. The screen means I can't actually see everyone in the audience. Sorry about that. Um, so thank you for the invitation, and I'm delighted to be here. I think this is maybe the second or third time that I've actually spoken to OTJR, so at some point you guys ought to get sick of me. Um, but anyway, and I'm also not mastering the up and down arrows as well as I might. There we are. Okay. okay. Sorry about that. Um, I can only say that for some reason the arrows aren't working and the mouse is, is being a little bit overactive. So, um, welcome to sorry. Welcome to I think welcome to any university. <laughs> um, so, as you've explained, basically what I'm going to be talking to you about today um, are, are some of the really preliminary findings coming out of a joint project between myself and Anya Mir in the Netherlands, um, funded by ESRC and NVO on the impact of transitional justice measures on democratic institution building. Um, so you can see there um, the names of everyone possibly behind whatever gibberish I may spout today, um, because in fact what I'm going to talk to you about comes very much from a collective research project. So you can see who's been involved across the project, and of course, as ever, we must say thank you to our funders, which I have done. Um, what I want to start with is really where is this project coming from? Obviously, there's been a, a massive proliferation of research on transitional justice. So why are we doing this project, right? And we're doing this project because we feel like even though we've seen a, a real proliferation of focus on attention to impact in a variety of different ways and real concern about trying to figure out, okay, how can you or can you, in fact, measure what the impact of transitional justice is on X, Y, or Z desirable dependent variable and these vary across different kinds of studies. Um, there are still pretty serious gaps in what we know for a variety of different reasons. So we've seen um, a real attention you know, to testing this impact question, partly coming from development actors who really want to know where their money is going and whether there's actually any bang for the buck, and from academics who are asking more serious questions about causality. right? Um, so, of course, we have, and I think this is most notable, I believe it was in 2009, someone can correct me, but, the, but what was first a paper and then was published in, um, in IJTJ um, by Toms Ron in Paris, basically asserting, and I think over-asserting, that in fact we didn't have good evidence for anything to do with what transitional justice did. Um, now, part of the reason I, I think they were perhaps over-asserting it a little bit was because they were basically saying, and rightly so at that point in time, we didn't really have systematic quantitative data. And they seemed to discount a lot of the individual and also comparative case studies that were out there. But they really did put a flag on something that has been a consistent problem in the discipline, which is that we make a lot of claims about what transitional justice can or should do. And then we pick and choose a lot of times with our evidence, whether we want to prove it's bad or we want to prove it's good, right? Um, but I do think they understated just how rich the actual data we've got is, right? Um, and this is both qualitative and quantitative. And of course, the quantitative data since that piece, and some of this was already in process, um, has been built up significantly by a fair number of scholars, many of whom you know, and one of whom is based here. That's Lee Payne. Um, 
And so what we've seen, again, as I say, in that time, is a real growth of both large-end quantitative studies and comparative qualitative work, as well as mixed-method work. And I won't name out everyone. You're familiar with all of these folks. Um, but just to give you a sense of sort of where we've moved to. Um, but one of the troubling things, or not, if you like a puzzle, is that, in fact, they don't agree with each other. And these are, you know, a variety of different studies, qualitative and quantitative, and they're pretty rigorous in their own sort of research design. However, they don't come to the same conclusions. So you could look at this as, okay, it's hopeless, we know nothing. Or you start to pick it apart and say, okay, well, are they asking the same question? And in fact, they're not, right? Because in many cases, they're asking about different transitional justice mechanisms and or they're asking about different impacts, right? So they're asking about impact on human rights or impact on certain kinds of democracy or democratization measures. Um, so it's not surprising that we are in fact seeing some disparity and I understand, for example, some of the disparities between um, Lee Payne and Catherine Sickink's data is being resolved or attempting to be resolved precisely by a subsequent project, which is an AHRC NSF project. Um, because, of course, as we all know methodologically, how you ask the question kind of affects how you get an answer. Um, so even if some of these um, problems of sort of correlation um, or, or causality as it appears to be um, could be resolved. Part of the problem is sort of controlling for variables, but for us there's also a bigger problem, and this is what really drives our project, um, which isn't just is there correlation and maybe can we work out causation, but if there's causation, how is it working? Right, and that's what we ultimately really want to know. Um, because we want to know this as scholars, but also because we think that this is the kind of thing that's ultimately useful for policymakers. They don't want to just know that X happens and then Y happens and we think that there's a correlation, but they actually want to know the process and also the process by which things fail, right? Um, so again, what we're asking is, does transitional justice affect democratic institution building and if so, how? Um, we've chosen to focus on only five measures of transitional justice. We have excluded some that you might want to ask questions about, um, including, for example, traditional justice. The reason for that is because we're focused on democratic institution building and therefore we are only focused on transitional justice measures that we think have the greatest possible capacity or likelihood of having any relevance to what we then talk about as democratic institution building, i.e. basically state level measures. So it doesn't mean that we think that traditional justice doesn't matter. We absolutely think it does, but for the purposes of what the, of the process that we're trying to look at, and we'll talk. I'll say a bit more in a minute about precisely what I mean in terms of the process, because we, we, we're talking about sort of causal pathways. Um, we're assuming that we are looking at um, reasonably politically elite measures and state-driven measures, right? Um, so that's why we're looking at amnesty prosecution, commissions of inquiry, um, specifically state-driven ones. So when I get to the countries, you'll see that we've got a problem with Brazil because the only major commission of inquiry until recently was, of course, a church-led one. Um, memorials and reparations and lustration and bedding. Um, and then we've got a rather peculiar dependent variable. And I say peculiar because we've created a hybrid that isn't actually a term that exists in the literature. Um, so I'm prepared to try and defend it when we come to Q&A. Um, we talk about democratic institution building rather than 
democracy, quality of democracy, mm. democratization, or some of the other terms that are most frequently understood in the in the democracy and democratization literature. Um, and this isn't because we've rejected that literature. In fact, it's very much built into how we've approached this, but because we wanted to try and pin down elements that we actually thought transitional justice was expected to impact, right? So, because right now, oftentimes what we look at is, we had a transitional justice measure and we see a Freedom House scale go up or down or something else, right? So, what we wanted to do was pin down, well, what are the claims in the literature about what transitional justice can impact in terms of different elements of democracy? And how would we go about looking for it? So in a sense, what we wanted to do was give a fair test, and in some ways quite an easy test, because we actually are pretty suspicious of, of how much impact there will be. Um, so we wanted to focus on the things that the literature and policymakers most frequently expect transitional justice to do. Right, so this is why we look at these elements. Um, so the first is rule of law, and obviously rule of law is a very vast sort of domain, and by it we mean primarily, although not only, judicial independence. Um, we also mean how rule of law relates to the second element, which I'll speak about in a minute. Um, but we don't mean every possible aspect of rule of law as it's sort of increasingly expanded in, in sort of development programming. Um, the second is democratic control of the security forces. Um, and again, I think you can understand why this would be relevant for element, an element of democracy and also how it is, and I'll explain in a minute, um, how it is that transitional justice is expected to affect it. Um, so we're basically talking about obviously civilian democratic control. Um, and the final one, which is a little more complex, is participation in political and public life. And this becomes clearer when you start to look at particular elements of transitional justice and what they're expected to do. Um, this is largely focused on are there groups who were always excluded or specifically excluded during, say, a dictatorship or during a civil war um, that now are able to participate. Um, so just to say a little bit about the methodology very quickly, um, I've referred to both um, the presence of qualitative and quantitative studies. This is explicitly a qualitative comparative study. It focuses only on eight countries across four regions, and these are um, Japan, South Korea, East Germany, Hungary, um, Chile, Brazil, Uganda, and Sierra Leone. Um, and I'll say a little bit more about that selection Obviously, the idea was to, to focus across different regions and to focus across different types of, of conflict or abuses, different types of transition, and very different um, sort of geopolitical time and space. Um, so our focus, again, with the how is on pathways of impact. Um, and specifically, we use process tracing secondary death study, you can, you can read all of this, it's pretty much what you would expect, um, a mixture of primary and secondary study um, in a range of interviews across all eight countries. Um, I'm, the paper that I've got here, sorry, I meant to say, there's a short policy paper which we put out, which is the sort of preliminary findings. I've got a little pile of them there for anyone who wants them. Um, this focuses only on four of the countries. 
Um, and that's actually because those are the four countries on which my team, the London team, took the lead. So these are in Latin America and Africa um, because we felt a little more secure even as preliminary findings to talk just about those and try and draw out what we were starting to see. Um, as I've mentioned, the idea was to focus on geographic diversity, um, also geopolitical time, right? So we've got countries that are emerging from World War II. We've got countries that are pre and post end of the Cold War. We've got countries that have experienced internal armed conflict and countries that have experienced authoritarian rule or some mixture. And also quite a wide diversity in the transitional justice measures of the five that I've talked about, um, of, of which ones are used. But we selected based on ones that have used at least one and that were initiated 10 years or more ago. And the reason we wanted to do that, I think, is pretty obvious. Um, many of us assessing transitional justice processes, and I've been guilty of this as well, are really good at basically judging processes before they've even started or when they've just barely started. So we wanted to actually give them a fair shot and say, okay, you have to have at least started 10 years ago, right? So that's how we actually made this selection. And it actually made, given that we didn't want to look at South Africa because it's been so heavily studied and it's also even amongst, our cases are quite peculiar, it's even more peculiar. Um, so with Sub-Saharan Africa, we actually struggled to find two countries that truly fit our bill, and so this is what we have. Um, so what we developed along the way is um, the idea of pathways of impact. And this is very much drawing on what the existing literature tells us is supposed to happen. So what we wanted to do was basically boil it down and say, okay, what are we really making claims about? And then let's actually go out and look and see if it's happening, right? Um, so there are three major pathways that basically are drawn implicitly or explicitly in a lot of the literature, both policy and scholarly, um, between our different transitional justice measures and um, the particular democratic elements that we're interested in. Um, but they often don't spell it out that well. Um, so we've, we've broken it down in terms of reform. Um, so the idea being that there would be reform resulting from transitional justice measures to flawed institutions that generated previous human rights abuses, right? So a really straightforward example is we expect truth commissions to make recommendations, they do. We hope that those recommendations will be implemented and many of those recommendations say very specific things about um, abusive patterns of, for example, the judiciary or the security forces and make very specific recommendations about, for example, closing down abusive elements of security services, right? Um, the second pathway that we developed, which is, is not really articulated in the literature in this way, but this is, again, this is how we've boiled it down from what the claims seem to be, um, is delegitimation, right? So the idea is that um, transitional justice measures help to legitimate or delegitimate. We're not claiming that it all runs in one good direction. Um, different political and institutional actors. Um, so effectively, the claims that individuals um, institutions and ideologies make about the validity of what they did in the past or their right to govern now um, may be challenged by transitional justice measures or alternatively may be reinforced, right? We're not assuming, as I say, that this all runs in what we think is a shiny, happy direction. Um, and then finally, empowerment of previously marginalized actors, the idea that um, they help to promote 
and open up political space and space for discussion um, around human rights, enable space for opposition and victims and so on um, to actually engage in political discussion. Right, so this is the, that's the third possible pathway. Um, so again, I've noted that we're only looking um, in this policy paper, and I'm only going to speak to the sort of preliminary evidence that we have from four countries, um, those in Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. Um, from preliminary research um, that I've done in, in Japan and South Korea, I'm finding actually resonance from these same findings. Um, but again, I don't want to overclaim just yet, and I think we don't overclaim. Um, so. There we go. Okay. Um, so in terms of delegitimation, I think this is potentially one of the most interesting ones, and it, we've done now a more extended paper, which you had the misfortune of hearing at ISA, um, specifically focused on delegitimation in these countries. Um, what we find is that there's actually some, some interesting, if limited, evidence on the delegitimation part as opposed to the legitimation part. Um, insofar as, yes, you do have evidence in some limited cases of removal or delegitimation of certain kinds of persons or institutions from political influence. Um, and we have limited evidence here from Chile. And I want to emphasize that this is limited, right? Um, and it's taken a very long time. So one of the things we're seeing is that even if this evidence is here, um, it comes after um, more than you know, more than ten years after um, the attempts to try Pinochet, right? Um, and so, as much as we see a shift, we're not sure whether that shift is coming from the trials or the trials are actually coming from the um, not the reform of the judiciary so much as generational changes and training in the judiciary. Right. Um, so we see moderate, we see some correlation, but we actually have really some conflicting evidence from interviews about what people think is actually driving what. Right. Um, it's also possible that when you have limited transitional justice um, processes, you can have a pretty negative effect on legitimation. Right. And this is um, an example that we, we see from Uganda, where, um, in fact, the selective nature not only of the attempted referral to the ICC, um, focusing only on the LRA and focusing only on um, on northern Uganda by by President Museveni, um, but also now the um, the limited work of the International Crimes Division, the fact that the amnesty only focuses on the L LRA, um, and the fact that the military, of course, has tried um, any any military member accused of war crimes has tried. Um, in uh, in courts martial, um, the upshot is that there's a narrative that follows from that, which is that the LRA committed all of the crimes and the military is responsible for none. Right. So it perpetuates a sort of narrative um, that has very specific effects on legitimation, among other things, of the state and the armed forces, and potentially, you know, well, not potentially, actual, clear delegitimation of the LRA. Now, we may not be too bothered about the latter, but I think we might want to be concerned about the former. Yeah. Um, at the same time, there is the possibility that you can have more explicit legitimating effects. Um, and clearly, the, the, the strongest example that we've found so far in our cases um, is the role of amnesties in the context of Brazil, right? where it doesn't just enable the return of exiles and also um, is related to processes of reparations, 
but it also um, basically legalizes their capacity to function again, right? People are, are allowed to not only legally return or be released from prison, um, but they're allowed to run for public office. And of course, the, the classic example is the current sitting president, um, Dilma Rousseff, who was, of course, um, arrested and tortured under the, pre under the military regime. Um, but there are also some limits which really come down to implementation failures, which um, just to give a, a really obvious example, and we, we talk about this a little bit in the policy paper, truth commissions, their recommendations might be expected to also delegitimate certain institutions because they give you a narrative about the ways in which security forces were abusive, the ways in which the judiciary was abusive, so on and so forth. Um, but one of the challenges is that the recommendations which seek to speak to that are often, often go unimplemented, right? And this will come to reform, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. Um, so a good example is the, um, the recommendations of the Truth Commission of Sierra Leone, right, which made really quite strong recommendations um, in relation to the security forces um, and certain abusive elements, as well as in relation to the judiciary, but then of course handed over the implementation of those effectively to the National Human Rights Commission and then starved it of funding and politicized the appointments of the heads. Um, so we end up running into quite significant difficulties when it comes to what that delegitimation looks like in practice. Um, so this relates obviously to reform, which is what I'm coming to now. Um, there is some evidence that reform can be informed by commissions of inquiry. Um, and the argument has been, um, although there are clearly very strong debates on this, that the 1986 Commission of Inquiry in Uganda did actually help support and inform the reform of the Constitution there. Um, it's also possible that, for example, in, um, in Uganda, again, ICC membership has helped to um, inform specific elements of reform, things like witness legislation, right? So very specific targeted stuff, but stuff that we ought to care about. Um, at the same time, as I've noted, you can have really strong reform recommendations coming out of reports of commissions of inquiry, and as with Sierra Leone, they effectively aren't addressed, that is to say they're shunted off to an underfunded commission, um, or they're dealt with very slowly or without really any clear reference to the commission report. So the Reddit Commission actually in, in Chile um, had quite strong discussion and recommendations in relation to elements of the security forces and elements of the judiciary, but the reforms that actually happened seem to come from different sources and don't necessarily reference the report itself or do it in passing. We know we had this problem in the past. Um, but they don't take it up as though they're implementing the reforms. Um, instead, it's about the fact that we need to professionalize the judiciary, or this is part of professionalizing the military, or this is part of a generational change. But in fact, what, it, what doesn't happen is any sense that we're implementing these things. Um, and in Sierra Leone, curiously, um, you get a lot of reforms attempted, particularly around the security forces, that seem to echo what the Truth Commission says, but the people doing it actually explicitly say, we know what they said and we stick it in our, in our commentary about, you know, our reports about what we're doing, 
But we're not doing it because of that. And this seems to be about institutional claims about reforming themselves or politicians' claims, right? And so they don't actually want to give credit to the reports. So it's, it's actually kind of a, a sort of bizarre situation where they may actually be drawing on or informed by the report, but they actually don't really want to talk about it. Um, so I ha we haven't quite worked out how you interpret that, yeah? Um, and then we also have the, a, a very real question, right? If our, if our inquiry is about does transitional justice actually have an impact on democratic institution building, we've got a real problem because processes are running simultaneously, right? And it's very likely that in some cases we're going to see that the trials, are, the trials, for example, as a transitional justice measure, are a consequence of democratization. They're not driving the democratization. They happen because the democratization happened, right? And so, again, what we're what we're getting, particularly in Chile, is, you know, a lot of a lot of response from interviews, and also temporally, it looks this way. A lot of response from interviews saying. Well, no, this is because the judiciary has been reformed that we're able to have these kinds of trials now. This is because the military isn't as involved in politics that we're able to do it from a security perspective. Um, so, in fact, our question could be the wrong way around, and this is part of what we're trying to document, and indeed why we're doing this as a qualitative study, because you can have that kind of narrative in there. Yeah. Um, and then finally, in terms of empowerment as the, as the last element of democratic institution building, um, and this is the one I have to say we have the most difficulty with, because in a sense it's the most fuzzy, it's the least well-defined, it's, it's there really strongly in the literature on transitional justice. It's not there in the same way in the literature on democracy or democratization. So we've tried to sort of cobble together what our understanding is, but it's actually a real struggle, but we think it's important. So this is where we're at. Um, so we have seen some anecdotal evidence from Uganda, for example, that where there have been transitional justice processes, even those that have been pushed by the government, um, or even those that are pushed by outsiders that some people sort of query how authentic they are, um, that, that, that in some cases what communities have done is seized on this as a space for discussion about wider human rights issues, right? So there's a memorial process that may actually be more self-serving for the government than for the communities affected, but communities actually take this as an opportunity to say, and we also want to talk about this. These are our current human rights concerns, yeah? Um, in some cases, empowerment starts to merge with one of our pathways, which is one of the questions I've had from, from talks before, um, in the sense of participation, right? Um, so what we have is not only that we have reintegration of marginalized or excluded people, which is an element of empowerment, it is also a pathway potentially for political participation. Um, so if anyone's got a great solution for how we actually deal with the fact that one of our pathways starts to run directly into one of our elements of democratic institution building, I'd love to hear it. Um, we, we keep struggling with this because they're, they're important autonomously, but they actually do have this problem of being interconnected. Um, so again, the examples I've given of amnesty and, and reparations in Brazil and Chile are in a sense examples of both a pathway and this element of impact. Um, but what we find overall throughout the countries that we've looked at so far, 
um, is a relatively limited set of evidence for the capacity of transitional justice to actually promote this kind of empowerment. There's, there are the sort of really stark standout examples like Dilma Rousseff, um, but then there are also really stark examples of either failure or some other processes being at work. For example, in Chile, um, where indigenous groups and indigenous leaders explicitly refused to engage in most of the transitional justice processes that were put forward, including a truth commission that was largely targeted at them. And that was because they didn't trust the government and they also had a belief based on experience from Spanish colonial rule that the best way to deal with what they viewed as an oppressive and exclusionary government was to ignore them until they went away. Um, this is sort of, this is the narrative that comes from a lot of the indigenous leaders. Um, so it means that there's an example where you have a mechanism that's actually claiming that it wants to empower them, and they're actually saying, no, we don't want your version of empowerment. So we're still trying to work out exactly what that means, but there's an, a pretty stark example of where, you know, the goal, uh, the aim doesn't in any way meet the target, Yeah. There's a hell of a lot of text here, and I'm not going to read it out to you or even talk through all of it. Um, there's, I'll, I'll send the PowerPoints if anyone actually wants them. Um, the upshot is, and this probably isn't surprising for those of you who've made the mistake of reading anything I've written previously, um, or from probably the tone that you've heard so far and the content you've heard so far, is that the, the claims that are currently made for the kinds of impact that transitional justice can have on these specific elements of democratic institution building appears to be pretty overstated. And this is based on an attempt really to try and give it a fair shot based on the mechanisms that would be most likely to engage in these impacts or to have these impacts and the targeted goals that are most likely to actually connect up. Um, and what we find is that in fact all of these pathways have much less effect. The delegitimation, reform, promotion, empowerment um, have a, a much less significant effect than has been assumed so far. Um, and this is in part not really surprising because they operate obviously in really constrained political environments. Um, so as much as anything, we're looking at the, the really boring questions of political will, questions of the security situation, those kinds of things that end up constraining the effects um, that might be had. Um, we also have some preliminary findings suggesting that it's not just that we have really limited evidence of positive impacts, but we've got some concerning evidence of negative impacts, um, particularly where there's a dominant party that may be driving transitional justice processes, um, because those tend to result in more selective processes. Again, Uganda is a pretty strong example of this. Um, or where there are societal cleavages that may enable suspicion. So an example I didn't talk about in this, but reparations in Sierra Leone, for example, um, not only took a very long time to actually begin subsequent to the peace agreement, so on and so forth, but more importantly, um, have sort of, how do I put it, they have reflected or repeated cleavages in society because of the sense amongst many people, victims in the wider, wider society, that ex-combatants were the ones who really got the sweet deal, right? Because they got, um, they, got, they got DDR packages pretty much straight after the peace agreement. And 
the reform process, uh, sorry, the, re the reparations process then takes um, many years after, um, depending on how you count it, um, about seven years after DDR is done. Um, and then there are also sort of widespread rumors about regional preferences, political preferences, ethnic preferences. None of these have to be true to end up helping to reinforce certain kinds of societal cleavages. Yeah? Um, and the same thing has actually been true in Brazil, where lots of people who object to the reparations in the country say, look, it's actually just Dilma and all of her people. It's all the leftists who got reparations, not everyone else. Um, and so there are all kinds of, again, don't have to be true, but very specific kinds of political claims that are made um, that may or may not undermine what we imagine the effect of reparations to be. Yeah. Um, so again, this means that they may not be the most useful tools in some cases, or rather that we need to be politically sensitive to how different kinds of uses of any of these measures may actually be received. Um, and then, and I've already alluded to this um, when I was speaking about Chile a couple of times. Um, clearly, we're asking a causal question in one direction, and we're asking how does, if at all, transitional justice actually affect democratic institution building. But we really need to be a lot more sensitive to the degree to which democratization may be what's driving transitional justice. Um, and then finally, um, we need to recognize that, in fact, we often treat transitional justice as though it can drive all kinds of pretty massive societal changes, um, almost as though it's operating in a vacuum. And first of all, it's not. It's often operating in the midst of UN peace building operations, um, all kinds of intervention or involvement by international NGOs, so on and so forth. Um, and it's also operating in the context, frequently, of attempted at least democratization. Right. So these things are running simultaneously. Um, and so part of what we're, we're starting to find in terms of our evidence is that there's more likely to be a positive contribution where it is actually transitional justice that is embedded in processes of inter institutional transformation, right? That it's actually tied to these things rather than having some imaginary jump, right, where it magically affects these, these aspects. Um, and also where it's relatively inclusive, right? So we are finding that where treatment of either victims or perpetrators is very narrow and selective. This goes back to my sort of um, asymmetrical point in the, in the previous slide, um, that this is likely to have less effect, again, because it comes down to questions of, of reception of these processes and, in a sense, the legitimacy of them. So that's that. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. Thank you.